Hi everyone, I'm Gary Nall, here to empower all people, but today setting aside for the special unique insights that come from the feminine mystique. For all the women, or those who identify as women, who believe that they should have every opportunity, that they, there should be no prejudice, no bias, no misogyny, they are correct. My role, my responsibility throughout my career has been to highlight any time that we can see that something is wrong and then show what a more positive, constructive outcome can be. Hence today, for the women throughout the world, I'm going to be contributing five separate but interrelated topics. The first will be to take a look at a story from a Dr. John Reed. Dr. Reed is a professor of clinical psychology at the University of East London. He has written a compelling account that I will then add my own commentary to, quote, shocked, it damages memory and cognition and brings no lasting relief. Why is electric shock therapy still a mainstay of psychiatry? In that respect, I remember spending about four years researching the definitive article on the father of American psychiatry. At that time, I took a look at the relationship of psychiatry or what was considered any form of psychiatric illness and at one time what was considered insane in medical jargon going clear back to the founder of psychiatry whose face still adorns the seal of the American Psychiatric Association and who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. And he was the one who coined the term nigritude, which meant a person suffering from leprosy and the darker their pigments, the more leprosy they suffered from. So therefore, any treatment that could resolve the darkness of their skin would help them relieve themselves of their illness. And drapetomania came through that whole segment of thinking that the African-American was a limited person and have had no value. They were the other. They had no more value than a horse or a cow. Uh, they were for breeding and using and exploiting. And unfortunately, this was fully embraced by the majority of mainstream doctors and certainly those in mental health or psychiatry. As a result, he said that anyone who was afraid of staying in their position of servitude suffered from drapetomania. Therefore, anyone caught running away would be brought back and given punishment because they would have known that what they were doing was wrong. You shouldn't try to escape your suffering, your slavery, your imprisonment. Later, that would morph into the Stockholm Syndrome, that somehow you began to adapt a an association, a symbiotic relationship with those that suppress you, repress you, even punish or torture you, imprison you. And even when the prison cells are open, how many would willfully step out saying, I should never have been here, you should never put me here, I did not deserve to be here, your thinking and your mindset, your judicial system is what should be imprisoned and everything else liberated. But that was not to be then or now. So I did a report on this. Some of you may have listened to it, and it was called, uh, and the the. It was about 
the lack of medical freedom for anyone who was African-American. But within the African-American genre, there was also the female African-American who was frequently the subject of experimentation. In fact, more women have been experimented upon with electromagnetic therapy or electroconvulsive therapy than males. Why? Why? Why has this happened? Because we are not looking closely enough at the issues. It's not that we're stupid. It's not that we're not capable of understanding these principles of subjugation, oppression, income, political, social inequalities. We are, because we all live it. If you were to take a, a trip down to the area of the world where I was born and raised, in West Virginia, now both east coast to West Virginia and the west coast to West Virginia, the borders, historically it was the eastern borders in Appalachia, dire poverty, generation after generation. But it wasn't so down the Ohio River, Canal River. That's where factories, OAMS, and others opened up and there was a prospering, a very fully uh, employed and a good standard of living for the working middle class and the trade unions as well. Now it's all poverty, all the time, everywhere. So stop and talk with them about the cancel culture. Talk with them about rights. Talk with them about the new um, draconian and purely racist screeds on uh, white fragility by D'Angelo. And they will say, this isn't me. And they're right. They want a simple life. They're not professional. They're not careerist. But now imagine this. Virtually everything that we're taught, everything that we're propagandized, everything that we are shown to be right every day comes from careerists. People with the advanced education, people frequently from the Ivy League schools, people who have joined a coterie of like-minded individuals, they number into the hundreds of thousands, close to a million. They are the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission. They are the Business Roundtable. They're the ones who are always staffing the administrations, always with similar elite people, power people, people representing different industries. These are the people who, through every administration, going clear back to Roosevelt, were the people who first and foremost represented and sought the best interest of where they came from. So how then does the average person relate? How do we change? How do we get beyond our prejudice, our biases, our racism, our misogyny? We don't ever, as long as these people are the ones who are the messengers. These are the policymakers and opinion leaders. They're extraordinarily biased. As a result, when I, when I write a commentary and I say, who is going to read it? More often than not, it will be people who are not of the higher educated level who are the careerists. The careerists in all fields should be the ones leading us forward out of our misery to a better way of understanding, to a deeper understanding, to a more focused understanding, to a more open and unprejudiced and unbridled dialogue. But we don't have that. We have individuals doing it, but not as a group. As a result, we are where we are today. And hence, we will continue having 
more often than not, women diagnosed with a brain chemical imbalance, which does not exist, never proved to be existent at all, being told this is the therapy. Now, that same psychiatrist, the same doctor, the same anesthesiologist, the same nurses, the same hospital, the same insurance companies, the same governmental over, overarching agencies that are supposed to protect the public are guilty completely of the fraud of good intent with bad protocols, and hence only getting a bad outcome. So I'm using this as one example to show what everything about medicine is wrong. Everything is misguided unless there are some specific areas, like emergency medicine, that are important and do work. In the majority of cases, the vast majority of medicine has failed. The vast majority of education is now failing of critical thinking. In fact, we're actually censoring doctors, nurses, educators, environmentalists, humanists. We're censoring anyone who challenges the current narrative in ways we've never imagined capable of historically. So we're going to be talking about this, and I'm going to talk about menopause and time-permitting breast cancer today as examples, just two examples, of how women's bodies are still being controlled, even though the movement the first and second um, feminist movements, and certainly the third, are to liberate women so that they can make informed choices. But what if the information they're getting to make their informed choices misinformation? It's propaganda, just like the vaccines that everyone's rushing out to get, bragging about it. Arnold Schwarzenegger bragging about getting his vaccine. Well, why should we trust him? We shouldn't. We can appreciate his athletic prowess as a bodybuilder, or we can enjoy his movies. Beyond that, he has not shown that he has earned that respect. Some celebrities have earned it because they've spent their life, their career, and jeopardized that for taking stands on environmental issues, human rights issues, and we appreciate those individuals. Schwarzenegger has not been one of those. So now to our program. This was published in Eon. Quote, In the early 1970s, I was a naive 21-year-old in love with my first job since graduating university as a nursing aide on a psychiatric ward in New York. Three times a week, several older women would sit in a line against the wall in the corridor. Some were slumped motionless in their chairs, Others seemed scared and agitated. Occasionally, one would try to run off and was brought back to the chair by kind but firm staff. When I found out that they were waiting for electric shock, I volunteered for the job of sitting with them as they came around from the general anesthetic after the electric shock and the seizure. They would ask me, where am I? Who am I? Why is my head pounding? And what did they do to me? I remember being unable to answer the old lady who asked me in tears, why would they do such a thing? The Royal College of Psychiatrists in the United Kingdom, in its latest public information document, also, by the way, as an aside, true in the United States, electric therapy is a treatment for some types of severe mental illness that may not respond to other treatments an anesthetic and muscle relaxant are given, and then an electric current is passed across your head. This causes a controlled fit. 
display language, that's a seizure, which typically lasts less than 90 seconds. The anesthetic means that you are asleep while this happens. The muscle relaxant reduces the movement of the, of the fit, seizure. As an aside, if you've ever watched anyone getting electroconvulsive therapy, their body was shaken so bad that they broken their jaws, crushed their teeth, broken ankles, wrists. That's how dangerous it is. It is given as a course of treatment twice a week, typically for three to eight weeks. Based on what science? How about none? The most common response I get when mentioning shock therapy beyond mental health circles is, are we seriously doing that? To grasp the persistence of this treatment, you need to go back in time. Electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, joined a long tradition of applying extreme physical procedures to distressed or distressing people. Harsh laxatives, bloodletting, Remember the President of the United States, first one? He died from bloodletting. He just had a cold. But Benjamin Rush, who was the father of psychiatry, who termed the coin nigritude, who a form of leprosy, who then treated African Americans as if they were no different than an animal with a disease, he was the one doing the bloodletting on the presence. So the first psychiatrist from one of the signers' declaration of independence actually killed the first president. But they also would blister the forehead. They would rotate you in chairs, spin you, as if by spinning you, that would help you. They would give you ice baths. Uh, they would inoculate with scabies. They were force-feeding chimney soot and wood lice. And briefly, at the beginning of the 20th century in the United States, surgically removed teeth, testicles, ovaries, gallbladders, and colons that were completely normal. The 20th century witnessed malaria-induced fevers, insulin-induced comas, and a range of psychosurgery procedures, including hammering an ice pick-shaped instrument into the brain via the eye socket, what is called a prefrontal leucoptomy, an insertion of radioactive uh, Y90 into the brain. All these treatments were administered by practitioners who, in their time, genuinely believe they were helping people, much like what you have probably a half a million physicians today engaged in what I would consider barbaric, inhumane, and completely non-science-based medicine. And all this was to help the patient. You see, seizures per se were always considered the symptom of an illness, not the cure. So why in the 1930s did some Italian psychiatrists come up with the idea that it would be helpful to cause grand mal seizures in people considered mad? The key is a theory of the era positing that epilepsy couldn't exist alongside a group of symptoms lumped together and called schizophrenia, by the way, which has never been properly uh, defined and cannot be shown as a brain chemical imbalance. So while some doctors started treating epilepsy by injecting blood from people diagnosed with schizophrenia, psychiatrists were exploring ways to induce epilepsy, at least epileptic seizures in schizophrenics. In Hungary in 1934, the psychiatrist named Meduna 
induce seizures in patients by injecting camphor and metrazole. After giving his first injection, Baduna, quote, was so distressed he had to be supported to his room by nurses, end quote, according to researchers. Meanwhile, in Italy, the neurologist, Ugo Sorelli, was giving electric therapy, electroshock therapy. He experimented first with dogs, placing electrodes into their mouths and rectums. They died. He discovered a way to bypass the heart at a slaughterhouse. The hogs were clamped at the temples with big metal tongs, which were hooked up to an electric current. It was 125 volts. They fell unconscious, stiffened. Then after a few seconds, they were shaken by convulsions in the same way as the experimental dogs. He felt he could then justify doing the same experiments with humans. His first human subject was a 39-year-old engineer from Milan, whom the police found wandering around a Rome train station in a confused state. When the first electric shock failed to produce the desired convulsions, uh, Sirletti and his assistant discussed whether to administer more powerful shock. All at once, the patient, who evidently had been following our conversation, said clearly and solemnly without his usual gibberish, not another one, it's deadly. They proceeded anyway in the first of the millions of instances that were to follow and which continue today of people being given this treatment despite clearly stating they don't want it. After another larger electric shock, which did produce a convulsion, the engineer couldn't recall being shocked, the first of millions of instances of short-term memory loss caused by the treatment. And like Maduna before him, uh, Sirletti wasn't insensitive to the effects of what he was doing on the person in front of him. Quote, when I saw the patient's reaction, I thought to myself, this ought to be abolished. Ever since I've looked forward to the time when another treatment would replace electric shock. I had a similar reaction to Maduna and Sirletti's when at the New York hospital, I witnessed my first electroconvulsive therapy along with some medical students. When the psychiatrist asked, would anyone like to press the button? The five other young men were all keen, yes. Having watched the woman convulse and then become limp, I wheeled her unconscious body back to the corridor. Not a very reassuring sight on the queue. I ended up in the car park throwing up. Even before knowing what the research says that electric and therapy, I, I, I had quite literally a gut reaction that something was dreadfully wrong. But to understand why electroconvulsive therapy still happens today. Remember that the five medical students either didn't share my revulsion or perhaps chose to conceal it from their teacher. Acceptance in the 1940s of Sirletti's strange invention is best understood by recalling that psychiatry's medical model of human distress has thus far developed no zero, nothing. They are abysmal failures. It is an entire profession of quackery at its worst, but no one challenges it. We will, I have, will continue to. There are hundreds of vast mental institutions full of thousands of chronic incurable patients, presumably rather demoralized, pessimistic staff. And so this is how it happens. I'm giving this as an example of how even when we've had all of our movements, 
health movements, freedom of choice movements, and of course the various stages of feminist movement, that today you think you're safe, go into a doctor's office and listen to what they say. Last evening I had a call from a friend who wanted to know, was there anything that could be done to a resistant person who wanted nothing to do with alternative therapy because they had been told, either through looking on Wikipedia, that it's all quackery, or their doctors told them, but this woman has end-stage cancer. She's had three operations. The cancer's grown back. She's had multiple bouts of chemotherapy and radiation, and now she is, you know, going for a, the last possible treatment, and she's cachexic, and she's dying. This year, over 550,000, more or less, people in America will use just what the doctor said, state-of-the-art treatments, and they will die. And yet, cancer will be considered curable. It will be substantially rewarded. Billions of dollars spent on, on therapies. And the doctor, the oncologist, will be considered a hero because they fought the good fight. No, you didn't fight a good fight. The patient's the one who fights the fight. You're rewarded even when the patient dies. And when enough patients die, when a half million die over the last 40 years, that's 20 million dead from just cancer alone. And you consider self with such arrogance and such hubris and such narcissism and such entitlement to your rewards of your failure. That to me, that is medical genocide and a disgrace. And it shows you how much further we have to go in empowering the freedom of choice movement. Along the way, there are many feminists who have stood out. They've stood out because they made major sacrifices. They made sacrifices when a sacrifice could mean you could be killed. Frequently those in India, Afghanistan, and other countries were killed for standing out. Others would be imprisoned. They had no no legal rights at the time. So I want to give a special acknowledgement to the people who I believe are unique in their contributions to all of, all of the people of this planet, but to women in particular. Sarah Moore uh, Grimke, from, she lived from 1792 to 1873. She was an abolitionist. She became a lawyer for the suffrage movement and women's rights. Lucretia Mott, Quaker, women's rights activist and social reformer. She conducted the first convention on women's rights in the United States in 1848. Marianne Schad, S-H-A-D-D, uh, she was Canadian. She was anti-slave activist and a lawyer, first black woman publisher in North America, one of the first to create a radically integrated school in defiance of racism. Harriet Tubman, abolitionist, humanitarian, spy, later suffrage movement leader. Rosa Parks, called the first lady of civil rights and a mother of the freedom movement. Madam C.J. Walker, a uniquely and remarkable individual if you ever read about her life, which you should. She was the first African-American self-made millionaire turned social and civil rights activist and philanthropist for black causes. Henrietta Edwards, 
also unique. She was a Canadian feminist who fought for women to be recognized as persons under the law and got women the right to vote. Carrie Chapman Catt, a woman suffrage leader whose work gave women the 19th Constitutional Amendment for women to vote in 1920, founder of the League of Women Voters and the International Alliance of Women. Dorothy Day. She had a fairly long life. She lived to be 83. She died in 1980. She founded the Catholic Workers' Movement, and she worked in poor inner cities her whole career. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, I put them together because both were up to the challenge for helping lead the women's suffrage movement and founders of the National Women's Suffrage Association. Audre Lorde, an early founder of the black feminism, fought for lesbian recognition and the rights within the African community and the civil rights activists. Judy Berry, um, still alive today, I believe, feminist, labor leader, uh, environmentalist, activist, uh, principal organizer of the radical Earth First campaigns to fight corporate logging. FBI attempted to kill her with a car bomb in 1990. I don't know if she's still alive. Um, Dora Russell, uh, she passed in 1996. She was Bertram Russell's wife, the British advocate for birth control with H.T. Wells and John Maynard Keynes, prominent in post-World War II peace movements and fighting for nuclear disarmament. Um, Nina Simone uh, included so much of the black struggle and Jim Crow laws in her songs, and she was inspired by the radicalism of Mark, Malcolm X and, and uh, Martin Luther King. And of course, one of the most important was Rachel Carson. She was the founder of the environmental movement in America, Silent Spring. They all went against her. Um, then you had your second wave feminist, the French writer, uh, Simone, had in the 1940s examined the notion of women being perceived as other to the patriarchal society. She went on to conclude in her 1949 treatise, The Second Sex, that male-centered ideology was being accepted as a norm and enforced by the ongoing development of myths and that the fact that women were capable of getting pregnant, lactating, and menstruating is no way a valid cause or explanation to place them as the second sex. The movement is usually believed to have begun in 1963 with Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique and President John F. Kennedy's Presidential Commission on the Status of Women released its report on gender inequality. Now, for those who have, might be younger and might not have read The Feminine Mystique, it explicitly objected to how women were depicted in the mainstream media and how placing them at home as housewives limited their possibilities and wasted potential. Verdan's surveys revealed that the women who played a role at home and the workplace were more satisfied with their life compared to the women who stayed home. The women who stayed home showed feelings of agitation and sadness. She concluded that many of these unhappy women had immersed themselves into the idea that they should not have any ambitions outside of their home. That was highly contentious because there's opposing views that show that many women felt that they were very happy being homemakers and 
the people responsible for primarily the raising of their children, the, the inculcation of the best of the historical narratives of their own ethnic background, culture. And so that has been an ongoing discussion. You had freelance journalist Gloria Steinman. She gained widespread popularity among feminists after a diary she authored while working undercover at a Playboy bunny waitress uh, at the Playboy Club. In her diary, Steinman alleged the club was mistreating its waitresses in order to gain male customers and exploiting the Playboy bunnies as symbols of male chauvinism, noting the club's manual instructed the bunnies that, quote, there are many pleasing ways they can employ to stimulate the club's liquor volume. Of course, you have Angela Davis, political activist, scholar, leader in the Communist Party USA, an icon for African-American women. Uh, you have Dolores Herrera, American Latino labor and civil rights activist who co-founded the National Farm Workers Association, now the United Farm Workers, Im Immigration and Women's Rights. Marianne Wright Edelman, civil rights activist on behalf of children and the disadvantaged, founded the Children's Defense Fund. Kate Millett, author of the 1970s Sexual Politics book and one early of the advocates for mental health reform for women and reform of nursing homes and legalized abortion. Ruby Dee, who I met and had discussions with, her and her husband, Ozzie Davis. Uh, she was an actress, a poet, a playwright, a friend of both Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. She was arrested many times as civil rights, at civil rights protests, and she was active in the black organizations. Alice Walker, author, poet, African-American feminist, and human rights activist, supporter of Palestinian rights, a member of Code Pink. And then you had the hundreds of Catholic nuns who served prison time for their protest. 85-year-old Sister Megan Rice, charged with sabotage of nuclear weapons arsenal at Oak Ridge. 68-year-old Sister Gwen Hennessy, imprisoned for infiltrating the School of the Americas. Sisters Eileen O'Connor and Kathleen Erickson for mobilizing Catholics at Standing Rock. Sister Miriam McGillis of Genesis Farms for eco-feminist Christianity and climate change activism. Busloads of nuns protesting Ohio voter purges. Sister Simone Campbell and founder of the network which lobby for peace building and immigration reform and economic justice. And so these are just some of those. And it's rare that the average person ever hears most of their names. I just want to let you know that they're more than a name. They're a significant reason why the rights you have and may even take for granted, they, they were there to do the fighting for you. Let us never forget the shoulders upon which all of us stand for those who made the sacrifice for us to be who we are. There's a lot of victories because of the second wave feminism, the 1967 executive order extending full administrative action rights to women, the 1968 EEOC decision ruling illegal sex segregation um, help wanted ads, couldn't advertise one against the other, Title X and the Women's Educational Equity Act in 1972 and 74 for educational equality, the Title uh, X Act of 1970, the Health and Family Planning, the Equal Credit Opportunity Act of 1974, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act of 1978, the outlawing of marital rape, 
the legalization of no-fault divorce, uh, although not legalized in all states until 2010, the 1975 law requiring the U.S. military academies to admit women. Many Supreme Court cases, such as Reed v. Reed in 1971 and Roe v. Wade in 1973. So for those who believe that there's been no improvement, no change, you are wrong. Always remember life on every level is a spectrum. If I were talking about what it is as just one slight example uh, to be a communist, I couldn't say communism is good or bad. You would have to take it piece by piece. You would have to say at what era in communism's history and what was your place in that society. Were you one of the Politburo's elite three million? Were you waited never for food, never had to wait for years for the housing for your family? <clears throat> you could have everything at all times. You were not limited with passes to go into the different areas of your country. Your view of communism would be different than someone who was working on a collective farm that had sent all of their chickens that they raised to a central place thousands of miles away and then wait for those processed chickens to be sent back and you were hungry in the interim. Your view would be different. For those who graduated, many of my friends are Russian, graduated from schools in Russia, highly educated, very smart. But also part of that education system was heavy propagandizing. So our conversations generally stop where we talk about anything involving propaganda instead of what they were actually educated in. But if their education was free, which it was, their housing was free, and they had a stipend each month, and they had food, then their view is going to be different than someone who is the other in the same country. So you see, everything in life is a spectrum. So when you go to make your statements, make it upon where in that spectrum you are and the circumstances surrounding it. Now, there are women who have been championed as the world's leading feminist, and because they have broken the ceiling, shattered it, and become extremely successful and powerful. And I would say, to the contrary, I do not consider these women feminist because I have not seen anything they have done that actually liberates those who are the least of the female on the planet. The last time I looked, they were not buying their clothes of, unless they were could afford designer clothes made by the designer. They were buying them like anyone else, including the high-priced brands made by slave labor out of Bangladesh or India or China. The ones I would say have gotten the wrong reputation, meaning they've gotten a good reputation and are invited everywhere, Madeleine Albright, Hillary Clinton, Margaret Thatcher, Jane Kirkpatrick, Susan Rice, Kathleen Syllabus, Margaret Hamburg, Janet Reno, Janet Napolitano, and Condoleezza Rice. I could give you dozens of examples, hundreds of examples in some cases, Madeleine Albright, where what they did was actually against women's rights. But that shows you on a spectrum, focus carefully upon what a person's actually done throughout their life. Now, there are a lot of issues and causes that are still important, including there's no legislation that interferes with a woman's use of her body, reproductive freedom, against mandated vaccines and vaccines during pregnancy, opposition to American educational programs, access to equal education for kids, chemicals in the cosmetic industry, anti-GMOs and the fight for food democracy, maternity leave from work, 
uh, also support maternity leave for dads, as, as they do in many other countries. Efforts opposing mammography as an industry and looking at thermography. Work equality and women's safety in the workplace. Equal opportunity and decrease, decreasing the gender wage gap. Lack of affordable and, and competent child care. Breastfeeding and better infant health care. Gaps in health care coverage for women's health issues. Uh, lessen the division of domestic labor. Working moms still do far more of domestic care than the husbands, sometimes called the final frontier of feminism. These still have to be worked on. I believe that there are causes we should all support, including organizations opposing domestic violence, stalking, and harassment. Women's legal organizations trying to increase conviction rate uh, of those that have uh, abused them. Reform of wisdoms, the women's prison system and the treatment of women in prison. I believe that no woman should be sent to prison or no man sent to prison for nonviolent crime. Those individuals may have done something that society considers unacceptable, but why not have them show that they can rehabilitate and by becoming a person working within a impoverished area that could actually help another human being and therefore relieve the larger society of what will happen to a person from a nonviolent crime going into a violent environment and coming out uh, shattered and even more violent. I believe that we should end all genital mutilation. We should end sex-selective abortions, and that's, that's so rampant. Uh, the last estimate I did is over 100 million babies have been killed, female babies. The general thing is they're taken out, put in. Uh, they're either, if they're rich enough and you get, a, uh, you get an imaging uh, and you see it's a female, they'll abort it. But for poor people, especially in India, but not only in India, it's also happening in China, they take the baby out and they put a cloth in its mouth. They fill the baby's mouth with sand, pour water into the cloth, and it suffocates bury the child, life goes on, and it shouldn't. I believe that the um, LBGT rights, since more children are becoming less heterosexual, that should be protected, their rights not be discriminated against, and disconnect e economically off their grid. That's something that we haven't done. Too many women are connected to too many things that are inherently discriminatory against them. Uh, pull money from the big banks, local banks, state banks, and put it into credit unions. Or invest it yourself. Divest investments from regressive capitalist causes. Stop, shocking at, stop uh, shopping at megastores. Buy local made in America. Support local community, local, local people. Local food projects to relieve the 70 million women and children in the United States who are on the brink of poverty. Stop eating fast foods. Join the anti-GMO efforts. Organic Consumer Organization is one. Food and Water Watch is another. Look at what not the anti-vaccine organizers are doing, but what the freedom of choice, because freedom of choice means that you may be for vaccines, but you want to first prove that they're safe and effective, the precautionary principle. The propagandists have labeled you an anti-vaccine and a threat to society. Look carefully at that movement because it's the movement that is willing to risk being shamed for being right. 
local and state environmental organizations join them. Join the movement against coal, fracking, pipelines, nuclear plants, progressive conservation programs to preserve nature and ecology from big corporate interest. Look for third, fourth, and fifth party candidates that represent the people and the environment equally without politics. Sever um, the, the improper representation of anything that goes against uh, a, a progressive woman in local, state, and federal politics. For example, the United States is not supporting the relief efforts in Yemen. We're contributing, along with Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, to the destruction of millions of women and children in those countries, not just Yemen, but also look at the women that we've done nothing to help in other countries like Syria, that we cause the problem, the women suffer. So join the universal women's suffrage. And you can only do that by going against any of the political figures. Doesn't matter whether they're Democrat or Republican. It's their administrations. It's the war powers that they hold. Go against it. And third-party campaigns, yes. Um, also, let's support women in the media who are there representing the truth, not ideology. Those who are using their feminist position to promote false ideology and propagandize, uh, challenge them. All right? Not all women are equal in their um, being on the right side of causes. Now, one of the things that feminists have told me over my adult life is that I ask, who motivated you? Who was, who was the person that inspired you? And almost without exception, they say Gandhi. And Gandhi also inspired Martin Luther King, among others. And Gandhi was surrounded by women that supported him in major ways. And, uh, and without these women, including his wife and many of the people in his immediate circle, Gandhi would have stalled long ago. So to all those women, known and unknown, we salute you because you were the blood that flowed into his psychic every day. He started his, uh, what is called a satagraph, um, well, his nonviolent movement in South Africa. That's where he uh, started. He became a lawyer there. And he was fighting against um, the inequality for anyone who was native uh, or not of European origin. Uh, you didn't have any rights. And he wanted to stop that. So he led the 1914 Indian Relief Act in response to a law requiring Indians to be fingerprinted and carry a special form of pass, plus a tax specially placed on indentured Indians. He urged Indians to deny the law and suffer punishments for, do, for doing so. It was a seven-year struggle with thousands of Indians jailed, flogged, and many killed. But they won. His first major battle in, in India was for civil disobedience at uh, Champaran in Bihar. It was against the British forcing farmers to grow indigo and other cash crops instead of food. So Indian farmers were going hungry. The farmers were forced to sell this to British landlords at extremely low fixed prices. 
the farmers fell into abject poverty. The British said, we'll just take away your land, give it to someone else. There was no empathy whatsoever. This was part of British, that, that British colonial uh, mindset. The British finally were forced to sign a law giving more control to farmers. Uh, this victory led to Gandhi being called the Mahatma, or Great Soul. And it was an interesting meeting because Gandhi realized that the people in his immediate circle, coming from different parts, some Hindu, from some Muslim, they could not make a change in India if they were coming from highly educated and a very wealthy positions. So he took away all of his clothes. He wore just the most, the most basic of basic, like a loincloth, and a, and uh, in colder weather, or where, when the temperature, he would wear, you know, something to keep himself warm. But he, he owned nothing. And in fact, when they had a meeting at one of the wealthy individuals' house, to decide how they were going to form this Congress of Indian people to challenge British rule. He came in and he said something to the effect that how can we represent the people, and the majority of the people are poor farmers, if we still look at each other as being superior or inferior or the class system? And with that, there was a person there, a house servant, an Indian, who was serving tea, and he took the tea tray away, and he then, to each person, I think there were, I recall there were six or seven people in the room, he gave each one their tea, something that would never, never happen anywhere in India. And uh, and this just shocked everyone. They didn't know what to do. They didn't know, they were all there in suits, he was not. And thereafter, you saw him, you know, saying, we must go and live amongst the people as they do, eat their food, and he would never again allow himself to travel first class. On these trains, it was first class, then there was second class, and there was the last poorest class, and that's where Gandhi would always travel. And uh, not everyone would do that. And, uh, and he and this group went throughout India, and they talked with farmers, and this is where he decided, we will rebel. We will have a day of prayer and fasting. Now, that wasn't illegal, but it meant that everyone in India would not go to work. So nobody went to work. I mean, literally nobody. Even at that time, it was reported that the, uh, the viceroy, the top uh, person in power from Great Britain, uh, didn't have anyone serving, uh, at a, uh, serving food at lunch, so he had to have his own personal military staff and others do the serving. Where's everybody out? Caught him by surprise. He closed down the entire country, and that led to them meeting with uh, the, the viceroy, meeting with the top landowner in India, who was British, and say, here's, here's these principles. This Gandhi wants you to sign it. If you don't sign it, they're not going back to work. So he signed it. That suddenly gave them relief on rent and relief on taxation, and they could grow their own food. They could grow their own crops. They could sell it themselves. Radical shift, major shift. But that was just the beginning. Then there was the nonviolent tax revolt at Kedah. Floods and famine resulted in a crop yields falling to less than 25%. The British refused to provide tax relief on peasants. Gandhi led the campaign of peasants pledging non-payment 
don't pay any taxes. And the British threatened to confiscate their land. Five months later, the government blinked, suspended the tax, and reduced the tax rate. All confiscated property was returned. That was Gandhi. Then his popular non-cooperation movement in the early 1920s. After the April 13, 1919 massacre, when British blocked exits and fired into a group of peacefully protesting people, they killed about 1,500. And uh, these were all nonviolent people. And that shifted the the movement, the non-cooperation movement, urged Indians to refuse buying British-made products. They boycotted the educational institutions and courts. They resigned from government employment, and they forsook uh, the British titles. In 1922, after three protesters were killed by police, an Indian mob uh, set a British police station on fire and killed 22. That really uh, upset Gandhi. Gandhi believed in nonviolence. He did not believe in pacifism. He was not a pacifist. He was very proactive, but nonviolently. And probably one of the best examples of that, in 1882, the British Salt Act prohibited Indians from collecting and selling salt and imposed a heavy tax on salt. In 1920, for 24 days, India saw that Gandhi marched 241 miles to Danai to produce salt from seawater, which was the common practice before the Sea Salt Act it was the largest scale civil disobedience at the time. 80,000 Indians were put in jail for it. No concessions resulted from it except to it reached international media, and that shamed. That influenced Martin Luther King. And uh, so that, uh, that was just one of his. The quilt, uh, Quit India movement, demanding an end to British rule in 1942, Gandhi declared that India... Um, India should only buy products made by Indians, not from Britain. Now, he understood that this would hurt uh, some decent and, and, uh, and good souls and who worked in the factories. And, but he said, understand the pain and suffering that we're causing these other good people, but they're a few thousand. We're hundreds of millions. And... Uh, when he led this fight, um, almost the entire leadership of Gandhi's Indian National Congress were imprisoned without trial. That led to demonstrations throughout the country, hundreds, thousands arrested, hundreds were killed, and Gandhi, uh, Gandhi found that once this was over, 100,000 prisoners were released. And finally, the British realized they're not going to win this. And so on August 15, 1947, India gained its independence, leading to partition of India and Pakistan, which Gandhi was against, as was Nehru, his closest friend. This led to widespread riots, estimated upward 2 million were killed. Gandhi was in 77, and he fasted, almost dying, until the bloodshed stopped. So understand that Gandhi's struggles and the women around him and the women throughout the world who were watching this, who were motivated, and men as well, um, he, he saw that there are evils in life that are unchallenged, and they must be. So launching campaigns to improve the lives of untouchables, those who are class system. 
Who has led the challenge in America? Who in power? Is it the president, the vice president, any of the women, any of the men in their cabinets led the charge to go into the poorest neighborhoods and live with them, to live in the slums of America, which now have over 2,000 communities that have slum areas, to be with the to be with the emaciated, to be with the ones who are at the bottom end of hunger and are starving, and the homeless children, of which there are at least two and a half million who go to school and have no home to go to. Where are the champions following Gandhi's example? And by the way, in 1930, Gandhi was named in Time magazine and Man of the Year and also front runner to Albert Einstein as person of the century. Martin Luther King believed in Gandhi. He believed in his message. And we should also remember it was Martin Luther King who led the Montgomery bus boycott on December 1st, 1955. Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat for a white person and was arrested due to the racial segregation laws that led to the Montgomery bus boycott and led to Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, coming on board. And the boycott lasted 385 days. And during this time, King was arrested. His home was bombed. He was subjected to personal abuse and threats. And the protest ended on December 20th, 1956, with the Supreme Court ruling that segregation on public buses was unconstitutional. This success led to the founding of the Civil Rights Organization Southern Christian Leadership Conference with King as president. He criticized President Kennedy for not doing more to stop racial segregation. This led to the Birmingham campaign. In the 1960s, Birmingham was one of the most radically divided cities in the United States. In early 1963, King started a movement known as the Birmingham Campaign. Campaign uh, gained nationwide attention when the Birmingham Police Department, led by Eugene Bull Connor, used high-pressure water jets and police attack dogs on the children. The movement ended with Connor losing his job and the municipal government changing the city's discrimination laws. That led to the Great March on Washington. King represented the SCLC with six other civil rights organizations to march on Washington for jobs and freedom. Uh, and that's where he gave his I Have a Dream speech, a resounding success with over 250,000 participants on the low end. I believe it was much higher, but it, it making it one of the largest political rallies for human rights in U.S. history. It motivated other marches and laid the stepping stones for the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And he supported the black sanitation workers' strike two months in Memphis against the appalling working condition and demands for eventual, were eventually granted. His efforts also led to the Fair Housing Act of 1968 to abolish discrimination in home rentals and sales. His, his re movement resulted in voting rights for blacks, leading to the 1965 Voting Rights Act that followed the Selma to Montgomery March and after a bloody Sunday incident, led to desegregation, led to labor rights. So when people say that we've made no, no, no progress, you are either politically naive, you don't know your history, or you're one of these people who are have weaponizing the current woke generation's dialogue uh, to form a new form of discrimination. But my goodness, don't try to rewrite history because you had the media on your side to do it. In fact, Martin Luther King gave over 25,000 public speeches and uh, he was named Time Magazine of the Year in 1963, the first African-American to have done so. But also, uh, there were women influenced by him. Uh, Coretta Scott King, Alberta Williams King, 
active in the NAACP and Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Uh, Mahalia Jackson, the Queen of Gospel. Uh, Dorothy Cotton served as one of his leading planners and trained, trained activists. Did some organizing of protests herself, much like Gandhi had. Ella Bar- Baker, mother of the Civil Rights Movement, founded the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Dorothy Height, only woman in his decision-making council and became president of the National Council of Negro Women. Key person organizing the Washington March. Uh, Pratha, uh, Pratha Hall, a Baptist minister and a leading field organizer, later became the professor of social ethics at Boston University School of Theology. Those are just some of the women who were motivated by King, who was motivated by Gandhi. And think of all the other people who since then have read both King and Gandhi and forgotten it. What I'm suggesting in my closing statements, and I'll get on an upcoming show to menopause and breast cancer, is that isn't it time that instead of fighting one another, we look at what we all have in common, the right to respect, the right to share care, love, empathy, and cooperate with one another, irrespective of a person's social, economic, ethnic, or cultural background, where we are all sacred beings sharing one to another. That's what Gandhi did. That's what Martin Luther King did. And it is time that we reignited that instead of having weaponized elements and individuals and opportunists within movements to to take us down the wrong alley instead of into a more enlightened period. I'd love to see a general strike against the federal government where everyone stops paying taxes, everyone stops going to work until all of the campaign promises never enacted. Stop stop funding the wars. Stop funding the military-industrial complex. Have universal health care. Get all money out of all elections. Open up our prison systems. Close down all private prison systems. Bring all people responsible for human rights abuses, the CIA and other organizations that have engaged in it with with absolute um, no responsibilities. Bring them forward and make them be held accountable. Vote for people who understand what it is to be a human being and not just an object of power. These are the things that if they were alive today, Gandhi and King would be arrested for. Gandhi and King, if alive today, would be shamed, minimalized, and then destroyed. Have we learned nothing? I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for listening. Have a nice day.